Let me see you put them up Reach the sky, touch the stars up above Cause it's one time for the underdog I'm Patrick Medivh, your host of Valuetainment, and today's sit-down is with the former chief disguise officer of the government who used to be with the CIA. She gets paid to disguise faces so you don't recognize them. Yes, that's exactly what she does. And it's very interesting. We got into the details of what makes a great CIA agent, and her answer will shock you. Jonah, good to have you on the show with us. Good to be here. So what does it take to be a CIA agent? I mean, how do I become a CIA agent? If, I, if I'm growing up, I'm saying one day I want to be a CIA agent, how do I do it? You know, most of the CIA people I met didn't grow up wanting to be one. They okay. all kind of, they came into it through all kinds of different doors. Um, the main motivation is a desire to serve your country. And they find very unique possibilities in working for the CIA. You're not working at GSA, you're not in the military, but you are supporting your country. Uh, you're making a difference, you're doing a job that hopefully matters, and uh, if you get the right job, you probably can even enjoy doing it. Uh, the motivation varies person to person, but everybody that I've ever known that worked for the CIA treated it almost like it was a calling. Almost like a calling. They don't pop around to other jobs. They don't work there for three years and then go off to the next, mm. to the next job. Got it. They stay. They might move around within CIA, but they stay within CIA. Is the CIA recruit me, or do I go apply and say, I'd like to work for you? Because, you know, there's this, for those who are not in the world, they wonder, is somebody coming out to recruit you, or is it you applying? goes both ways. Okay. My husband, Tony, was, um, he was an artist working in Denver. He saw um, an ad in the paper, now this was years ago. It said, artist to work overseas for the U.S. government. He's an artist. He's working at Mar Martin Marietta. He's doing wiring diagrams. He's drawing them uh, for harnesses for Titan II missiles. This is not art. He's an artist. He wants. So he replied to the uh, to the ad. It was the CIA. They wanted an artist. You gotta be kidding. He's me. thinking, what would, what would they do with an artist? They need someone with exquisite hand-eye coordination to do some documents for them, to copy some things for them. You could call it counterfeiting. You could call it forgery. But that's what he was really, really good at, and that's what they hired him for. And that's how he got into it. That's how he got into so it. So let me ask you, so when he went to the interview, at what point did he find out it's the CIA? The way he tells it, he's on the outskirts of Denver in a kind of seedy motel room with a guy who's actually wearing a hat. The guy pulls up a bottle of bourbon and sets it on the table, pulls out a, 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 a book full of classified ads from the CIA, goes... You read it. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not sure, but this is what they're looking for. He kind of knew then. So he knew kind of then that that's the case. He knew it wasn't just the U.S. government. He so at what point, so after that, is it kind of like either you accept or you don't? Is there a follow-up process to it? There's an enormous background investigation that is so slow and so mm, thorough that a lot of people just fall by the wayside. They can't wait. They can't wait that long. A year? Oh, it's one year. At least. So, so I sit down, I do an interview. After that, there's about a year plus process of them accepting me. Very likely, it's, it's a year. What, what are some things they want to know about me? They want to know if you're, um, if you're being sent by a foreign government. They want to know if you're really a patriotic American. Got they it. want to know if you have any criminal Got background. It. They want to know if you've ever been arrested for drugs. They want, they'll go visit your neighbors, your teachers, your, uh, your friends, parents. They'll check you out thoroughly, thoroughly calling references and talking to them in the most indirect way without bringing up the fact that it's going to be... One of my best friends told me years later, she said, you know, when you, when you were in Europe and uh, you'd been gone a while, this man came and knocked on the door. He said he was, he was investigating you, she said, for the, for the government. And I told him, she said, what I knew. And, but she said, I thought maybe, maybe you had married some guy who was a janitor or something. He wouldn't say where you were working. He wouldn't say what, he was, what you were doing or what the work was. Just checking you out. Wow. Yeah. And I know you had a friend of yours that didn't know you were a CIA agent for 20 years, and she was hurt, apparently, that she found out later I on. Couldn't, I couldn't tell her. So, we, we talked all the time. And you still couldn't tell her? I couldn't tell her. So when I, people ask I you have, what you did, what you tell them? Independent. Independent what? Independent contractor? It, it depended on where I was oh, it living. Depended. It depended it. on where I was living and what environment I was in, and then I could carve out a piece of it, and that's where I worked. So... 
here in Washington, D.C., you could say the Pentagon, you could say State Department. Sometimes it depended on who you were talking to. Because if you already told me that you worked at State Department, I'm not going to tell you that I do. Got it. If you're a heart surgeon, I'm not going to tell you I'm a heart surgeon, too. Got it. So you had to kind of feel your way. Got it. Got it. But you had and to do that. How were you recruited? Mine is, uh, mine is boring. I married uh, my first husband who worked for the agency. I didn't know that he worked for the agency until right before the wedding. We got married in Switzerland. Then we went to the Far East, and I needed a job. So I got a job with the CIA at the station. We came back home, and I got another job. I just kind of segued into it. Worked your way up. So the first reaction when he told you I'm a CIA agent, what was that like? I was from Wichita, Kansas. I don't think I even know what the CIA was back then. Got it. Yeah. Got it. It didn't register. So you and your husband, you were 27 years CIA. He was 52 years. That's, he was 25 years. That's combined 27 years. How is it being married to a CIA agent where both of you are CIA agents? Perfect. Is it really? <laughs> it was and it wasn't because we, under, we each understood yeah. what the other one was doing. But we still couldn't necessarily talk about everything we were doing. So I know um, I was, uh, I never say where I worked. I can't say where I worked. I was in the subcontinent. I came home. He had a conference. He said, tell me about that thing you're doing. This is my boss. He's my boss back then. I said, well, I can't tell you. Who, your husband was your boss back then. He wasn't my husband. He was just my boss. He was two tiers up, my boss. He said, tell me about that. I said, I can't tell you about it. You're not on the list. You know, I told him later, if I had known I was going to marry you years and years and years later, I would have maybe told you. <laughs> you told him that. I did. So do you trust him? Do you trust being married to a CIA agent? Like, because they know they're a pro like you as well. How do you handle that? That's really one of the key questions when you're working. Yeah. It's one of the real compliments you can give a colleague. You can say, I would work with you. I would work with you. You know, we go off to far-flung places and, and where there's, there's really no support and where everything you need, you have to have it with you. You have to pack that bag. You have to trust that person to, to have your back. Mm -hmm. It's a very symbiotic kind of relationship to say, I trust you. I would work with you. It's a big deal. We would lie for a living. So there was this thing called a moral compass. We used to talk about it because we lied <laughs> for a living. But when we weren't working, you couldn't do any more lying. How you do you know, know the difference, though? Well, that you had to make sure that you kept those two things separate. It's important that you kept them separate. Yeah, that's what I wonder. I mean, some of these, you know, Aldrich James, some of these, these, these no-goodniks that we had working for us, they just lost their way. They really lost, if there was ever a line for them, they, they lost it. So when you're saying, I would work with you, there are some people obviously you wouldn't work with. And but you're saying that because you don't trust them. I would, I, would, I would not trust them with my operation or with my agent's life. So then why would the CIA keep them? So isn't that kind of a credibility for you to be able to say, if CIA trusts John, so will I, or that's not the case? CIA could have John, but you may not still trust John and want to do an operation with them. I might not think John was as accomplished as other, other people did. There would be a difference of opinion there. I would maybe not want to work with him. Maybe I had worked with him, and I knew that when, when, when push came to shove, yeah. he wasn't there. I had a boss like that. That I couldn't say I wouldn't work with him. I had to work with him. But when I did, it was, uh, I had to cover all the bases and make sure that everything was right. Because the, the thing I think about is, okay, you said somebody who gets into the CIA, it's not like I work three years, then I'm going to go be a cop, then I'm going to go work sales at Sears, then I'm going to go sell shoes, then I'm going to go do this. They stay in it for a while. Most of the people, I've, one time I had a, a, the regional, I was in California, I was part of a, a Vistage. Vistage is where they have entrepreneurs come to get us like a board. One of the speakers we brought was the regional CIA director for a West Coast, and we had him come speak. And he spoke to us for an hour. Questions we were asking... He couldn't tell his wife for 25 years, and he kind of told her he worked for the government, but wouldn't tell her all this stuff. But the question I asked uh, uh, that I'm curious to know what you're going to say about this is, so I work for the CIA, hypothetically, and all of a sudden, things are not working out. I leave the CIA. How does CIA control 
me not saying anything to anybody. What is the accountability there? They can't. So I can say anything to anybody if I want to? Not exactly. For instance, this book that I've just written. I can write down anything I want. I can put it, it could be like a dictionary. They have the right, every, everyone who works for the CIA signs away their right to the written word. You, can, you, the CIA, can review my written words, and if you find something classified in there, you have the right to remove it. You cannot remove something that you don't like, uh, it, just because you don't like it. But if it's classified, if it reveals sources and methods, you can take it out, and I agree to that in advance. When I sign up for the CIA, I've agreed to that 27 years ago. Got it. And, and, and I know you were talking about so when you wrote they, it. They, they can control me that way or any CIA employee that way. When you're, when you're speaking publicly, yeah. I think most of us stay within the lines. Now, if I went out of the lines and started talking to you about things that are still considered to be classified, there probably is uh, uh, some sort of a resolution that could take me to court. I don't know. I know that they have taken authors to court who have refused to remove the material and had it published anyway. And, and they've, they've confiscated any money that was made from that book. They will, they will do that. So I don't, there is repercussions if you do something. If you write it. If you, okay, if you write it. But, okay, so I guess what I'm trying to find out is rogue agents. You know, you, you see it in movies, you read about it in fiction novels, but I'm sure there's some also in real life that you deal with. How does CIA hold them accountable? Edward Howard was the first CIA officer who defected to the Soviet Union. Um, and he, was, he, he did it because he was so ticked off because CIA fired him. And we fired him because he was stealing money from the coffee fund. He had done a lot of drug uh, use. He, he had lied on his forms. He wasn't really, uh, he should never have been hired. We were getting him ready for Moscow, and then we fired him. When we got him ready for Moscow, he learned the true names of some of the most important agents we ever ran. And when he was fired, he went to um, Santa Fe, New Mexico, contacted the Russians, told them all the names, all the people that he had, that he had learned about. The case that he was to have run was a man named uh, Tolkachev. There's a book about him recently called The Billion Dollar Spy. It's one of the best spies ever that the CIA ever had. CIA ever had? Ever had in our history. We, that man provided us with billions of dollars in savings. He, wow. gave, us, he gave us the schematics, the blueprints, the, all of the information about their next generation radar on uh, airborne and on the ground. He gave us everything. The Pentagon said, oh my God, we don't have to do all this R&D. We'll start building the countermeasures now. And they did. So we're able to build the defenses for what they have not even yet built. This was just, it was remarkable. It was solid gold. And one of our guys, actually two of our guys, betrayed him. And they arrested him. And they executed him. Because that's what they do. Betrayed him. And betrayed. they executed the agent that saved billions? Or they executed the two? Billions. They, okay. they executed the Russian and our American... Uh, CIA employee who betrayed everyone went to Moscow. Is he executed or he's... He, was de he defected, he went to Moscow. He's still active, he's still working. He died. He died. We're not sure he wasn't killed. You're not sure he wasn't killed? I'm not sure. Do you know how long he lasted working or you don't have any idea? Uh, I'm assuming this is like in the 70s how and long when did this he, happened? Or? How long did he work for the CIA? No, so post-CIA he went oh. to Russia. How long was he I with think, them? I think he was, th he was there about 10 years. He was there for about, I mean, that's plenty of time to, to oh, he give gave them. Oh, he gave them everything he, everything he had. How much are you following with what's taking place with Huawei, with the, the China, you know, the China uh, cellular company with 5G? The 5G thing. Yeah, what do you think about the fact that the boss of UK's CIA, their, their intelligence goes and works for Huawei and he gets approval from David Cameron to be hired by them? I find it amazing. You're okay with that? I don't know. that. Uh, I was just in the CIA talking to our director of uh, uh, DDS&T, Science and Technology, mm -hmm. and she was saying, she's a woman, CIA, by the way, is run by a woman. Four of the five top people at CIA That's right impressive. now, they are women too. Not that I'm a feminist. Um, she was expressing concern about that. That's what, kind of what she wanted to talk about. We, we need to keep the edge there, and we are losing the edge, and what are we going to do about it? That's kind of like Comey going and working for Samsung. 
You could put it that way. Wouldn't that be kind of weird if that happens? Am I the only one that thinks that's weird for the former intelligence boss of UK to work for Huawei in 2010 and accept a job? No, I think it's, it's um, I don't know enough about it. Yeah, to I really just want, discuss I, it, but in, in broad generalities, yeah, I, it seems very, it seemed absolutely wrong. The only thing I think about, I think about like, I bring that to U.S. Because to us, we're not U.K., we're not China. So that's their deal, what they're doing. It's not our business. But in U.K., in U.S., if something like that were to happen, do companies typically go and hire CIA agent, former CIA agent that you've seen yourself, or not really? I know that our, um, some members of, of uh, CIA, I know, go out into, into commercial. When they retire, they mm -hmm. go out into the commercial landscape, and they do this and they do that. The ones I know, I don't know what problems with them. I don't know really how that's controlled. That's not something that I, that I personally followed. Got it. From your experience of being in it for 27 years and now, you know, with husband, you know, first husband, second husband, what made an ideal CIA agent? If there were certain things to say, these were the qualities of somebody that was very good at it. I know you said we were professional liars, we will you know, pay to <laughs> know how to lie, but what made, it, what made somebody a prolific CIA agent? If my husband was here, this is, this is the question that he would, he would love to answer. One of the qualities that you need to have as a CIA officer, well, there's a, there's a dichotomy because the people that we search for, we're talking operational now, mm -hmm. we're talking say, case officers. We want big personalities. We want gregarious people. We want people with really strong interpersonal skills. It's a big part of their job that they be able to approach people all over the world and convince them that they want to be our friend and they want to work for us. We can't even teach this stuff to them. We have to find those people. Wow. Or they have to find us. And they are usually larger-than-life personalities. That's why we hire them. We know them when we see them. And then we have to say to those guys, it's almost always guys, by the way, you could almost save the world tomorrow and you can't ever tell anybody what you did. You could recruit one of these Soviet agents that's going to give us billions of dollars worth of intelligence, but you can never acknowledge the fact that you were involved. You can never, ever expect to get any pat on the back, any, anything. Your ego has to be big enough no that you can it. just swallow this and you have to have this, uh, this approval that comes from within and you have to be able to think that that is enough. That's a very hard thing. <laughs> and a lot of people that start out wanting to work for us, they say, no, thank you. No, I can't do that. I can't do that. Oh, my. I just thought about a bunch of personalities. Let me bring an A-type personality that's good to talk to people, and it's driven and competitive. Goes gets the job done, but there's no celebration. That's right. Baby, you won't believe what I did today. I was dealing with this Russian guy. But I can't tell I you. I can't tell you I what happened. I can't tell you there. what I did oh, so today. That's, but that's I almost... the top. That's the pinnacle. That's the high quality. Yeah. Tony thought that that was a sort of a romantic quality, that, that your approval comes from within. He felt that way. Is, was he like that himself? Because he, he was an artist, he was creative. I'm assuming he had a big personality. He did. He did. Although the Parkinson's took away that big personality. Mm. So when, when Ben Affleck played Tony Mendez in the movie Argo, um, Tony and Ben Affleck went, went on, on George Stepanopoulos' show. Good morning, America. Mm -hmm. Stepanopoulos said, Ben, a lot of people think you really underplayed that character. And Ben said, have you met him? He's a very quiet guy. And Tony just sat over there very quietly because Parkinson's just I watched that interview. sucks that stuff out of you. My husband was not a quiet man. He was a thoughtful man, but he wasn't a quiet man. Well, I wonder how Ben played the role because is Ben playing how he is today or how he was before? Ben played the man he met. Ben played the man he met, but he wasn't like but that. But the man he met had Parkinson's. But Ben didn't know that he had Parkinson's. We hadn't told anybody. So Ben just thought, oh, he's a quiet guy. Did Ben interview with you to kind of get an idea from your end on how he was? No. He spent more time with Tony than he did with me. He spent uh, some time with Tony. And Tony didn't say, Ben, by the way, I have Parkinson's. And, you know, this is not me. So Ben just played the guy he met. And he, and he made a fabulous movie. I mean, it was a Oh, it was an incredible movie. I mean, listen, I can, my dad watched the movie and he got emotional uh -huh. watching the movie because his sister, my aunt, was stuck in the embassy when that took place. So That's while we were watching this, he, he, was, he couldn't even watch the movie. He says, I sat in the uh, uh, theater after it was over, but I can't even leave because my body was in shock watching this. It reminded me of what I had to my sister. I can't imagine yeah. how that must have felt. 
It was very realistic what they did. That, that airport scenes in particular were just, even if you didn't know somebody there, they were still emotional. I can't imagine his reaction. Yeah, no doubt. Yeah, it's, it's uh, very, uh, very well-made movie. And uh, the way the whole story, you read about it. So th the part about Argo, one thing I read is the fact that there's this 30-year rule. Is that true or is that just something we as citizens hear about? Like you can't tell a story of what happened for 30 years and then we can talk about it. Is there such thing as a 30-year rule? No. Because I know it was 78 and the movie came out right after 2008 and that's 30 plus years. Not that you know of. I still, I still, we've got other books. We've talked about other operations. We couldn't say where they took place. We still can't say where they took place. Uh, I don't think there's a 30-year rule. So how about this? I know one of the things I was watching you talk about was how to tell a spy. Like, you're a spy. How can you tell somebody else is a spy? You know, you know what I mean? So you're, you're you mean dealing on, with somebody else. How can you tell? How do you read that? You mean on the street or one-to-one or? One-to-one -one is what I'm talking about. Oh, I think, you, I think it takes uh, time and, and meticulous attention to detail and asking them about their past and, and assessing them and, and watching how they respond to various things there are, there are almost signals that you give off on the street it's easier than sitting in a bar with a beer sitting in a bar with a beer you, everybody just gets comfortable and you have this conversation it's hard to tell but if you're if you're worried about surveillance if you're out on the street you can see somebody who's worried about surveillance so they, they have all kinds of body language that they give off all little ticks little glances and little tying shoes and looking in windows and you know you can kind of see it so our officers in Moscow, we trained them not to do any of those things. We trained them not to look for surveillance, but to always assume they were there because they always were there. So don't go looking over your shoulder. Don't go trying to, you know, jaywalk across the street or, or dive into a metro thing and you'll lose them. You won't lose them. They'll just know that you're a spy. You, you, will, you will solidify their suspicion that you are a spy and they'll come in tighter. They will. And if you're in a car, They'll do this thing called bumper locking you. They'll get you. They'll get so tight on your car that you you can't do anything. You have to go home. So I remember one of the stories you talked about that uh, there was these two spies talking to one another and they were counting, and they said one, two, three, and that's not how they count. What was that story about? That was a movie. Okay. That was that was a, a scene in a movie. What was it called? Um, something bastards. Um, Glorious. Glorious bastards. It was a great movie. I love that movie. I, it was a scene in a, in a bar. There was an a Englishman, a German, a German, and they were ordering more beers. Mm -hmm. And the Englishman, who was pretending to be a German, held up the wrong fingers. He ordered, he ordered three beers to the bar. He just put his fingers up. And the German just sat up, looked at him, because all of a sudden he knew that that man wasn't a German. A German wouldn't do that. A German would do that. It was just a small so. thing. And, I mean, it ended up being one of the goriest scenes I've ever seen of shooting everyone in that bar, including the bartender. <laughs> everyone died because, because of the fingers. But it made a point. The point was you have to be really careful about all the small things. It's how, very How true easy. is that, though? How true is that? Is there, are those types of tales you pay attention to? Sure. Yeah, around the world. I mean, if you're working in a foreign country, you mm -hmm. want to know, are there, are there, what are the basics here? What, what do I not do? Some places you don't touch someone's head. Everyone has these these. these areas you shouldn't go into. But in general, it, if, you, if you flip it on its head, a lot of Americans want to know, how do they know I'm American when I haven't opened my mouth? How, how do they see me when I'm just, you know, part of a crowd? And, and it's fun to go down that list and the, the, the telltale signs that we all give off. You know, when I lived in the Middle East, I had to go to the airport maybe once a week and greet a CIA officer coming in on a plane coming in temporary duty, TDY. Uh, he would, I never would know them. I wouldn't know what they look like. I'd only know that the 747 is gonna land, usually at three in the morning, because that's a good time to bring those planes in. And you're looking for your CIA guy. And I could stand there and watch this crowd disembark, disembark, disembark. And I could walk up to a guy and say, excuse me, is your name Jim? And I take him, take him to the driver and we take him into town. I can find CIA people that way. It was like a profile that I could see. He wasn't a tourist. He wasn't a foreigner. How could you tell, though? Uh, because there, there, was a, there was like a dress code, like a, almost a haircut. We, we, it's like you could tell a military guy from a, from a group of civilians. Yes. You could see if there's a Marine in there. 
you could, you could tell a Marine from the other military guys. There are all these subcategories. I could find my CIA guy by the way he dressed, by the way, by his, the bags he was carrying, by everything. I, you could see him. Well, they can see us like that. What was the best kind of intel, by the way? Was it pictures? Was it audio? Was it video? What's the best intel you got? The best intel I ever got, that we ever got. I'm having a conversation with a, with a major bibliophile in the intelligence community. Okay. Because it has to do with cameras versus satellites. And I said in this book that my cameras, I call them my cameras, but it's my account. We had cameras that we could put in a pen, and we did put them in a pen. And it was a film camera, but you could still write with it. And you could flip it over, and you could take pictures with it. And your boss came in, and you could flip it over and make a note. Take him to lunch. Or you could put it in a woman's lipstick. You could have your lipstick at your desk. You'd be taking pictures. Your boss walks in, you could screw it up, freshen your lipstick, drop it in your purse, head off. Those cameras, we could put them in Bic lighters, we could put them in key fobs, we could put them in anything. No one knew they were there. And you would, out of the camera, you would get a piece of film like this, it'd have a hundred tiny dots on it, and every dot, about the size of a period, at the end of a sentence, was a full eight and a half by 11 page of text. Come on. Hopefully, of the minutes uh, of the meeting or the agenda for the meeting, or because we were looking for plans and intentions, and you, you want those documents. That's what we were collecting. Now, my bibliographic friend says, well, the satellites, they, they were holding their own, and they were fabulous, right? But the satellites were collecting what was already there. They were telling you the status quo. You could count the missiles, think of Cuba. You could, you could see what was on the ground, and that was valuable information. The plans and intentions is more valuable. This is, my, this is my case. So I'm thinking today, what if you had someone in North Korea who had the mm. today's equivalent of that? And what if he's in those meetings? Wouldn't you like to know what he's thinking? What, what the leader of North Korea what he's talking to his top, wouldn't you, or Putin, wouldn't you love to have that camera in the room? I would. That's the kind of information. We, uh, we had an agent in, in uh, Moscow who gave us the, the SALT-1 and SALT-2 positions of the Soviet Union before they went into the negotiations. We knew the cards they were holding. We knew how, how low, how hot, we knew what their lowest bids would be, their highest bids would be. We had the, the guy with the radar. We had uh, Pinkovsky, one of the first agents that we ever really, really worked with in Moscow. He gave to John Kennedy during the Cuban Missile Crisis. He had all of the information about the missiles in Cuba. He knew how many. He knew their state of readiness. He knew their range, their throw weight. Kennedy had all this information on his desk when he was having that standoff with Nikita Khrushchev, he had the information that, that gave him the ability to call his bluff, put up that blockade, stop that thing in its tracks. That's what good intelligence produces, and it's not always visible uh, at the time. Later on, these stories come out. When, when, when the equities, when the intelligence mm -hmm. equities are no longer gonna be threatened. But good intelligence is fabulous. Based on what you're saying, that's if you know my intentions, like you can find out someone's intentions versus how many missiles you have. I mean, you're pretty much getting that country's next five moves, strategies on what they're going to be doing. When we were chasing that bin Laden, Tony was, you know, and the, the media was always saying, gee, it's too bad we don't have somebody in his camp. And I, I was always thinking, and how do you know we don't have somebody in his camp? I mean, how do you know that? You don't know that. Tony said, not just someone, he said, you want his cook. <laughs> you want to recruit whoever's cooking for bin Laden. That's the person you want. They're going to hear every conversation that goes on. Uh, but that was, a, that was a tough nut. You had to be a member of the family. You had to, you know, you couldn't get in the circle without, without belonging to his family, practically. That was tough. Yeah, that's, that, that sounds like it would be tough. So how much based on what you saw that was taking place versus what the media was reporting, how accurate was that? 
my friend's in the military and he served 20 years and he went from army to special forces to highest level similar to Navy SEAL Team 6 and he had a presidential clearance and he worked on the you know Iraq, Saddam was all this stuff and he would say, I said which media you trust? He said I don't trust anybody. He says half the time we'd be watching stuff. Like, That's not true. That's, I'm actually I'm in it and what you're saying is not true. How did you feel when you're looking at the news watching news saying they have no clue what they're talking about? Did you ever feel that way? I never really felt that they didn't know what they were talking about, but I sometimes felt that I knew some things that they didn't know that would come out someday and probably change their mind. You know, that's having, and when I left the CIA, my friend said, that's what you're going to miss. You're going to miss that inside knowledge because it's kind of a, it's sort of a powerful thing. It's powerful, but you can't use it. It's interesting to pick up the paper and say, mm, give it two days and there'll be another story there. That's, that's interesting. I think, I think the attitude toward the media has changed today. We weren't questioning the media like we are now. We, um, we weren't relying on the media the same way that we are now. Um, yeah. Questioned and relied. So you're saying we didn't question, neither did we rely on it. The media had nothing to do with what we were doing. We weren't working for them. We weren't providing them information. We were, we were a conduit to the policymakers in Washington, D.C. Politics also didn't really play a part when I was working. I didn't really know the politics of the people I was working with. It wasn't part of the conversation. It didn't come up. And I think people weren't as, as polarized into their positions then, so it wasn't an issue. It was, everybody went out and voted, but we never asked anybody who they what voted you for. Volunteer, what you do wasn't a conversation thing. So I've heard of CEOs, chief executive officer, chief marketing officer, chief operating officer. What is a chief disguise officer? Ah, it was a great job. Chief of disguise at the CIA was, um, I had a worldwide staff. I had people positioned around the world, forward deployed like the military does, so they could respond very, very quickly. I had a big budget, a robust budget. Um, we used disguise everywhere in the world, but we used it in Moscow in different ways because it was such a difficult place to work. Um, it drove a lot of our technology. Moscow did. Mm. How, to, how to defeat Moscow. My husband, Tony, um, had started some R&D on, on masks early on, 10 years before me when he was in disguise. I, when I came into disguise, that was starting to produce some fruit. And one of the first masks that came out of production was, was for me. It was an African-American man. It looked good. It looked fabulous. And gloves. So I showed it to my office director. We took it to the head of CIA, Bill Webster. He said, oh, my God, let's take it to the White House. I said, I can't. It looks good, but I can't, you know, I can't really walk it and talk it. This is not realistic. It's just to show you the capability. He said, well, then go make one that you can wear. So we did. Uh, we made a second one that turned me into a younger, prettier, better coughed um, woman. I loved this mask. I, I wanted to take it home, when I, but they wouldn't let me. <laughs> so uh, Judge Webster liked it, and he said, well, let's take it to the White House. I said, I don't have any idea. I have nothing. He said, don't worry. Just, you know, come with me. And so we did. I went to his house. Uh, I was met at the door by the judge and his dog. The dog didn't like me, barked at me incessantly. I went in the powder room. I put on the mask. I got everything right. Came out. Dog loved me. They say dogs don't like hats, but evidently dogs like masks. So we went to the White House. We got stuck outside of the Oval Office because they were going long. And there was like a 10-minute hmm, period that was, I was a little paranoid. I'd never worn one of these masks before in public, and you get nervous. Nobody paid any attention, of course, uh, so I relaxed. We went, in the, we went in the Oval Office. There was a circle of us, Brent Scowcroft, Bob Gates, John Sununu, Judge Webster, me, and another briefer, and I went first. I was the first one. So I showed him some photographs of disguises we had done for him when he was chief of disguise. We said, you, you might remember these, he did. I said, so I'm here to show you the next level. He said, so show me. I said, well, I'm, I'm wearing it, and I'll, I'll take it off and show it to you. And he said, no, 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 don't take it off. And he got up, he came out, he walked, and he looked, he went behind me, he's checking it out. 
He went back, he sat down, and he said, take it off. So I just peeled off my face. John Sununu wasn't paying any attention to me because he was making notes. He was going to go next. Mm. He had some things he wanted to say to the president. He glanced up. He almost fell off his chair. He was I a bet. big, big man, and he, he was startled. Um, Bush really liked it. Bush, Bush was smiling. Uh, uh, so we talked a few minutes. It was, uh, it was a successful deployment. I was the first one to leave. I went out to play with the dog, Millie, and her puppies. And the White House photographer came out. She had been in the meeting, going around, taking pictures. She came out and said, what did you do? What was that? What was that? I said, I can't tell you. She <laughs> said it was classified. So it was a successful um, briefing. Um, ten years later, I got a copy of a photograph, her photograph, that they had airbrushed the mask out. And this is the only photograph I ever got. So I'm sitting in front of the president's desk with my hand in the air, mm. holding the mask, showing it to him, and they airbrushed it out. So the picture in my library, I don't know what you would think I'm doing, but people say that's... They airbrushed the mask out. Yeah, it was classified. They gave me the picture of I me. I mean, I've seen the picture, but I, you well, can't you, tell. You're, you're seeing the recent pictures because now we can talk about masks. A year ago, I could not tell you this story. It was still considered Why classified. Why could you say it now? Because they, they have allowed it now. Which to me, you know, what does that mean? Uh, sources and methods are classified. This evidently is no longer classified. Perhaps they're not using these anymore. Or maybe they've gotten wow. so good that what I'm saying has nothing to do with the new ones. I think that's more like it. Let me ask you, how many times you guys made masks for presidents to distract the audience? Like, are there duplicates out there as well that we don't know about? Or we can't know the answer to that question? For the president? Yes. No. Never? No. No. Not that you know of, or never? I would guess never. What I know of is never. You know what I'm asking, right? So there's, you know, I don't know. S Saddam had all these. Yes. Is that what you're talking yes. about? We have a picture of Saddam. In a, in a boat on, on the Bosphorus or something with, with his 26 doubles. They're all paddling. It's like 26 sedans. Have you, have you seen this <laughs> I picture? I have seen it. They all look exactly alike. It's brilliant. So we didn't, we've never done that, that you know about? No. I, there's a long, great history of presidents doing that. Okay. But I don't know that we've ever done that. Uh, I got it. Okay. Very I mean, cool. I mean, Winston Churchill did that. Lots of people have done that. George MacArthur is supposed to have done that. In my, I used to have... Call, when I was chief of disguise, I'd get calls from the seventh floor. They were going to have a party. There was going to be a, a presentation. There'd be something on. Could we do some disguise scenario for them? What's for, the seventh floor? When you say seventh floor? That, that's the suits. That's, okay. that's, that's the upper level. Got it. We always said no. We said this is not an entertainment. <laughs> I, was, I was a hard ass when I was there. <laughs> How much, how much different is, uh, how, how much tougher is CIA's job today with social media, or is it easier today because all these cameras are, you know, you have so much footage because your camera guys are pretty much 7 billion camera people going around with their phones recording. Is it much easier to do their work today or when you were? It probably cuts both ways, I would imagine. It's, it's um, yeah, there's a phone in every pocket on the one hand. On the other hand, if you're trying to use a cover identity, if you're trying to use a disguise, and if you don't have a, a telephone in your pocket that, that mirrors that face and that background, and I mean, you know, your shopping history, your everything, your driver's license, you have to have your whole lifetime in that phone, in your pocket. When you approach a, an immigration or a desk clerk at a hotel in a foreign land, you have to, it all has to match. That's hard, on the other hand. We were the technical arm of CIA. We were the Q. We were the ones that did the bugs. We did the phone taps. We did the, the, the fake identities. We did the disguises, we did the audio, all the technical stuff that our case officers needed, we did. We can take those same tools that are making it so hard today and use them in a positive way to make it easier for mm. us. It's an offensive and a defensive tool. Got it. So they can do it too. It's, a, it's, it's this kind of ridiculous battle. Everyone, though, has an audio bug in their pocket. 
everybody has an encrypted communication device in everybody, their pocket. Everybody, that's right. Everybody has a miniature camera in their pocket. And are, are you yourself, since you were in that world, are you paranoid about PCs, computers, iPhones, smartphones, the camera on a phone? Are you, are you paranoid about it because you were in the world? Because you know more than we do if that, if that stuff is used. I, I pay attention to what I put online. I don't bank online, for instance. I'm, you know, I'm not sure you can save yourself anymore because no, your bank is online. If, if you're not, they are, right. and, and they could still get hacked. Uh, the, the thing that... The thing that makes me paranoid is Alexa. I got to tell you, I have Alexas all over my house. She's doing my window blinds. She's doing my lampshades. She's telling me the weather. She's so I'm like, I wonder what else Alexa's doing. And that's a silly form of paranoia, but but it's normal. It's, it's a lot of people. I have a 32 year old employee at my home office. His name is Mario. He started off getting everybody on Alexa, and the other day he's like. I'm not using my Alexa anymore because he's, you know, she's listening to what I'm doing. I'm paranoid, so he threw away his Alexa. And this is a 32-year-old guy that's paranoid about Alexa. So I don't every, think you're alone. There. Every once in a while, my Alexa kind of spurts out a comment that has nothing to do with anything. I didn't say anything to her. <laughs> I'm walking by, and she just says something. I'm like, you know, so it's it's kind of a joke, but yeah, it's it's a sign of what's coming. How, how often were uh, in, were Seattle? Like for instance. You work at a company, I work at Google, I work at Amazon, I work at Morgan Stanley, Merrill. Are there employees who could potentially be CIA employees, CIA agents, or no? CIA agents strictly works for the agency. Not necessarily. We have CIA agents um, undercover. We have them working with private industry overseas. You always have to remember that our, our mission, our assignment is foreign intelligence, FI it's called. We're collecting FI. Our people typically overseas. If, if, if the work is being done here in the States or the targets in the States, it's probably the FBI is doing the work. So take the overseas piece of it. We've had people undercover in, in various large American organizations that the cover job was that they would work for a large American corporation. In fact, they worked for the CIA. It's called non-official cover, knock, they're knock officers. They're out there, they do that job. They, they, go to work and report to work and, and actually do the work of the organization that they're situated in and then they do our work for us. Uh, but they don't accept payment from the company that they're working for. We pay them much less. What does that mean they don't accept payment? So when that company pays them and goes into a direct deposit, CIA agency takes that money out and you get your salary? CIA takes, CIA turns the big money back to the corporation. This is the understanding with the corporation. And they get the much smaller CIA payment. So the, CIA, the, so the corporation knows that that employee is working for the corporation. Some person in the corporation would Some know. person knows. Someone is brief. Usually it's some very senior person in the corporation. So, so is the senior person also an agent? No, the, no, no, no. They're just allowing their government to occupy a position for cover purposes. So this they're okay with it? on a case-by-case basis. This is not widespread, but it, it has been done. Got it. It's a knock program. Got it. The, 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 the joke is that on occasion, our officers have found themselves in these non-official positions, non-official cover positions. They've worked with these big corporations. They've seen that money, and they've seen us turn it around and send it back. And they say, hold on a minute. I like this work. I like this money. And we've lost them. I they bet. go to work for the company, oh, and they bet. say, bye-bye. And what can CIA do? Nothing? Oh, they, no, if that's what the person wants to do. All the best. It, good luck. Yeah. Is, is, it the, is the culture, let them go gently? Is that CIA's culture? If you, if you lose a knock that way, yeah. Yeah, they can do that. Got it. Let's transition. Uh, the movie, I, I watched a movie, Red Sparrow. I think it's called Red Sparrow. Jason Matthews. Yeah, Jason Matthews. What did you think about that? I know Jason Matthews. Okay. I worked with Jason Matthews. He was one hell of a case officer. Tony and I trained him um, in surveillance detection. Um, he showed us his overseas situation, which was awful. I, I did not imagine that he could write like that. I, I mean, the book, did you read the book? Oh, Fabulous. Phenomenal. The movie, the movie was not so good, I didn't think. I met Jennifer Lawrence. I, I was on a stage with her, New York Times, uh, reporter and we talked about the story and they did what they often do with the movies they watered down the story to make it fit the arc that they that whatever 
So I didn't like the movie. I thought the book was phenomenal. His, when he writes about surveillance on the streets of Moscow, I am with him foot by foot. Mm -hmm. It's just mm -hmm. well done. How much truth was there behind what he wrote about? I think there was a lot of truth. The, the, the one thing that nobody really knows, and I, <laughs> I haven't really asked him, is about the Sparrow School. I don't know that there is a school, but there are sparrows. Uh, our, our people um, and a lot of innocent Americans go over there and bump into them, these women who are schooled in seduction, and here they come. They have gone after our United States Marines at the embassy. Clayton Lone Tree was uh, the, only, the only United States Marine ever convicted of treason. And what happened to him? He was an American Indian. He met this beautiful young woman who was working at the American Embassy. Her name was Violetta Sena. Uh, he seduced her. They had an affair. Then it appeared that he allowed some KGB people into our embassy more than once. Then he got transferred to Vienna. And her uncle showed up in Vienna and said, you know, I want you to give us the plans to the embassy in Vienna. We want to come in here too. So he went to our chief of station and confessed, and he went to prison. He was there for eight years in jail. That's what a swallow, the kind of pandemonium that can come out of one of those cases. Red, Red Sparrow is the book, name, name of the book, but it, it was called Swallow, I think, based on what I, yeah, so. Uh, a swallow and sparrow are, are almost interchangeable. Got it. How much of that practice is used in U.S. intelligence? You know, it's not. We don't use that as a tool. That doesn't mean that there hasn't been a seduction here or there. It just happens sometimes. But it is not a tool of espionage that we use. I mean, it's a very effective uh, method. Very effective because men, uh, you know, uh, if you want to seduce men, you know, they're typically, they like good food and they like good sex. So Yes, yes they do. And there are old stories, and, and maybe there are some new stories. Um, but as a concerted tool, Tradecraft. It's it's not. That that doesn't mean there haven't been seductions. Got it. There are some good old stories. Uh, maybe some newer stories. M maybe um, a history of it. With the East Germans, for instance, with the Stasi, it was a tool of their of their tradecraft, especially when they went into West Germany. They had a group of men. We called them Romeos. They went they went into. Um, Berlin, they went into Bonn, and, and they, they were assigned particular women that were working in the West German government. They married them, they had children with them. It was, the whole thing was a mock situation. And when the wall went down, the men went home, and these women are like, really? really? I mean, it was their life, and it was, it was a fake. And that, it kind of comes out of that Soviet style of using sex as a, as a bargaining you know, something that uh, I hear a lot, John McAfee comes out and he's a founder of McAfee Antivirus and he comes out saying, I want to run for president and he's pretty entertaining. No one takes him serious about him running for office, but he does make a good point. He says a lot of people are worried about nuclear wars where instead of being worried about nuclear war wars, what we have to really be worried about is a cyber war because cyber war can really mess up a lot of things. How much even your time, or even today, based on what you know, how much is the CIA trying to work on preventing a possible cyber war? Or that's not something that the CIA deals with? I think they must be dealing with it. They have to be dealing with it. It's, it's out of, it's out of my, my field of vision at the moment. Now I know what you know, maybe, maybe you know more, in the, what I'm seeing in the papers. Um, it's the new battlefield. If the Cold War was a matter of, of settling a hostility without taking the field of battle, which it was. Then the cyber war that's following it is just going to be the new version, I think, of the Cold War. Theoretically, without taking the field of battle, although I understand there were some planes in the air today. I mean, this mm -hmm. is starting to, mm -hmm. they have planes up, and we have planes up, and starting to look a little dicey. But, but cooler heads seem to have prevailed. I think just keeping it in the cyber borders is going to be enough. So they theoretically have bugs in our system and now they're saying, that, well, of course, we have bugs in their system and this is, this is where it's at. 
it may, it may supplant nuclear as the ultimate threat. It probably can do more damage than nuclear if it's, if it's carefully done. I mean, if they shut down the electrical grids, if they shut down the, 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 the banking system or transportation, and it looks like this could all be done. I mean, everybody's over here worried about climate change, but hold on. What if they just, That's right. what if they just turn everything off? The other day, last week, our, our building was hit by lightning. And we had no internet or power for three days. We worked out of a hotel for, for two days. With nothing. And, yeah. So that's just a company. I can only imagine if that happens as a country, what kind of an impact that could have. Well, you know, there's, there's this, this, this generational thing. We have a, we have a family graveyard in, uh, in Nevada, up north of uh, Las Vegas. It's about 90 miles north. It is in the middle of nothing and nowhere. It's just, there's nothing there. There's no internet. <laughs> there's none. So when we go, when someone dies, we'll take Tony there next year. We'll all go, big, probably 100 cars. We'll go up. And all the young people in the cars will drive with their hands out of the window, holding their cell phones up, trying to find some connectivity. And they cannot believe that there is a place, that there isn't an internet. I mean, they really don't know what to do if there isn't an internet. It's scary. That is, it's everything. Yeah, it's how we're connected today. I mean, that's... that's uh... So if, if we lose our internet, we'll lose a generation. The next generation will have to learn again how to speak, how to talk, how to interact with people, how to, you know. May not, so are you saying it may not be a bad idea? Is that, is that kind of what you're no, saying? No, no, I don't want to lose I the felt internet, something but... there. <laughs> okay, so let's talk about the book. So the Moscow Rules. What, uh, tell us a little bit about the book. Uh, the Moscow Rules is talking about our, our office that we worked in, OTS. It was the, 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 uh, the cue to CIA. It was the Mission Impossible kind of real life. It really was. Um, we, we had engineers, we had electrical, mechanical, we had chemists, we had physicists, and then we had all kinds of very esoteric specialties, people that just did batteries for their life, uh, people that did ink for their career, ink, uh, hot air balloons, forensics, we could make anything, we could make any kind of paper, we could make any kind of document, we could actually make any kind of money, but we didn't, because did you know that making another country's money is an act of war? It's an act of war. It's an act of war, and you cannot do it. So we didn't do it. We could do anything. And as we were working, we were involved in, in these sub-miniature cameras um, in um, creating documents um, that could pass through international controls and, and coming up with encrypted communications. A lot of what we were doing was trying to keep our foreign agents safe trying to keep them from being arrested because if they were arrested in Russia they would execute them and they arrested a lot of them and they executed a number of them uh, back in the 80s in 85 it was called the year of the spy we lost we lost a whole stable of agents some of them were lost because of American traitors so it was uh, it was compelling work it was it was really very interesting the book is talking about some of the links to which we would go to invent the technology that didn't exist yet. It wasn't commercially available. Most of what we were working towards is now contained in a cell phone. Encrypted communications, the cameras, the, all of it, it's in your phone. But the piece in here that we've never really talked about before was um, deception and illusion in Moscow, the hardest place in the world for us to operate. We had so much surveillance that we couldn't work. You, you, couldn't, you couldn't walk down the street, you couldn't drive, couldn't go to your apartment, they had bugs in the walls. Even the American embassy was penetrated, both with technology and with people that worked there. Uh, KGB was all over it. Really? They were foreign nationals uh. working for us. We had uh, some ambassadors that thought that was a good idea. So, as chief of disguise, Tony initially went out to Hollywood and um, he was working on disguise things, but he was very interested in the magic community out there and he got involved in it. Uh, he wasn't as interested in the performances as he was in the engineering behind the performances. So like, how do you make an elephant disappear on a stage? They've done that in London for years and years and years. Classic old trick. Elephant walks on the stage, it's a big box. People go in the box, they say, yeah, there's nothing in the box. The elephant goes in the box, they close the door. The magician talks for a moment, opens the door, elephant's gone. Where's the elephant? It's the classic idea of 
where is your audience? What's going on here? How are they playing with you? So we told them our problems in Moscow. They said, okay, you call it um, an operation. We call it a performance in magic. The first thing you have to do is figure out where your stage is. What is your stage? Is your stage a sidewalk um, down the street of Moscow, or is it the parking garage in the American Embassy? Where's your, where's mm. your stage? Then figure out who's your audience, who are you playing to? Is it the Millie man that, who's guarding the, the shack at the embassy that you have to drive by? Is he your audience? Or is it the guys in the car trailing you down the street? Or is it the video camera in the parking garage? There were a lot of them. So you start dissecting your, your situation and then you start designing the illusion. Um, in Magic, a lot of the illusions are based on twins. They don't actually have to really be twins. They can just sort of look alike. So when we started making masks, really good animated masks, good enough that you can brief somebody wearing them, we could start replicating people. We could make a second you. We'd have to find some tall guy with kind of your build, but he didn't have to look like you, and we could give him your head. How close do you get to it? Real close. Real close. We make, so there, now there are two of you. Then you can start playing games with your surveillance wherever they are. You can do it in a mm. car. You can do it on the street. You can, you can switch people in and out. And they think they're with you, but they're not. You are over here doing the work that you want to do. Um, so there was the twin thing. We started working with something called a jib, a jack-in-the-box. This was just proprietary for Moscow. Nowhere else. It was a briefcase that the passenger would put on the floor. This would all be choreographed to within seconds, but you would be driving down the street with your surveillance behind you. You'd take a right-hand turn. They'd be coming along, and then you'd take another right-hand turn. And with that second turn, you're in what we call a gap. And maybe it's five seconds. Maybe it's 10 seconds. And in that gap, it's enough time for the man in the passenger seat to get out and for the driver to hit the button on the briefcase, and the dummy pops up wearing the jacket, the shirt, your oh, hair, gosh. and your face. And so surveillance comes around the corner, and there's still two people in the car. There's an old Russian man walking down the street. That's our case officer. And off you go. Those kinds of deceptions and illusions, we did a lot of that. But my favorite, uh, my favorite one was called Disguise on the Run. And uh, what we learned in magic is there's nothing like a crowd to shield what you're doing. You can do anything in a crowd. You can walk down the street at lunchtime in New York City and no one's looking. So if someone's walking toward you and they see you walking down the street and maybe you just grab your shirt and tie and just pull it down because there's no arms and it's split at the back and, mm -hmm. just, and just roll it up and stick it in the bag. Uh, you can take off your coat and and do the same thing, or maybe you take it off and peel it off, you can put it back on backwards and it's totally different. You take a backpack, you put it in a shopping bag, you pull a, a beanie out of your pocket, put it on, you put some earplugs in, you have your Walkman out. You're, now you're wearing a tank top and you've got a sleeve of tattoos going up it. And my son did this for a, a Wired.com video. He's kind of bopping down the street. He starts out a little businessman with a bag, he turns into this dude. It's all tatted and all. And it's, it's just, you can do a lot of that. Tony sold that to our office director. With a 45-second demo, he started as a businessman with a briefcase. And he turned, by, by the time he got to our office director, who was 45, 45 steps, 45 seconds away, he had turned into an old lady in a pink coat with a shopping cart full of groceries. What else? An black. old lady with a pink. My husband. Yeah, it was, my, and and that was what convinced our office director that we could use this technique. So we used it in Moscow with one of the best operations we ever ran, one of the most important operations we ever ran. Took an American diplomat and turned him into a Russian who even smelled like vodka. I mean, he was this old Russian pensioner who walked up to a manhole lifted it and went into the manhole because there was something in that manhole that was so important. It was the beginning of a huge, successful operation.
collecting against a nuclear target in Russia. So the book goes in, goes behind the magic community and talks about how we, how we uh, got into some of that deception illusion stuff that sounds not frivolous, but it really made a huge difference in what we, what we, what we were doing. That was Tony Mendez, who was uh, an artist, he was always an artist. Started as an artist, ended as an artist. He said to one of, the, one of the writers that was doing a piece on him, he said, you know, I've always been an artist. He said, but for 25 years, I was a pretty good spy. For 25 years, I was a pretty good spy. But the art, I think, in the end, won out. Tony, Tony was, was um, something of a legend at the CIA. I bet. I mean, yeah, of course, yeah. when you read about him, it's, it's yeah. uh, endless stories that yeah. come up. Yeah. Well, I appreciate you coming out and being a guest on Value Tainment. Thank you so much. Appreciate you. Thanks, everybody, for listening. And by the way, if you haven't already subscribed to Value Tainment on iTunes, please do so. Give us a five-star. Write a review if you haven't already. And if you have any questions for me that you may have, you can always find me on Snapchat, Instagram, Facebook, or YouTube. Just search my name, Patrick Bid-David. And I actually do respond back when you snap me or send me a message on Instagram. With that being said, have a great day today. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.